You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, good morning. Welcome to Living Way Church today. What a great time of praise and worship today. And uh, I'm excited to get into the message today. And we have been talking about the minor prophets. We spent the summer and we're wrapping them up in the next week or two. We were only going to do two more uh, because we did a whole series on the last one, Malachi, uh, earlier this year. So we've only got two more after today. We're coming to the end. And uh, today is like a, a oddly large, big, important one, but it's also the smallest book in the entire Old Testament. And it's uh, one of the smallest books in the entire Bible. Um, it's only 21 verses. We're going to be talking about today, like I said, we've been doing the summer through the minor prophets. They're, they're called minor, not because they're less important, but just because they're smaller and uh, they, they just are lesser known. So today we're going to be tackling the book of everybody uh, that everybody knows. It's on the tip of everybody's tongue, Obadiah. Who's ever read Obadiah? Very good. A few of you. Here's what's funny is that every one of you could sit down and read it in five minutes, in less than five minutes. It's 21 verses. If you want to say, yeah, I read a book of the Bible today, read Obadiah because you like have the whole book in like five minutes. Um, Obadiah, here's the background check on Obadiah. Basically, uh, we've been talking about the fall of Israel, how Israel was planted by God and how God was raising up a people that would give birth to the Messiah, that would give us Jesus. And this great nation of Israel, after three kings, fell into civil war and divided into new, into two kingdoms, into two separate nations. One of them took the name Israel, one of them took the name Judah. They were brothers. They were a nation of brothers and sisters related because they had the same family line. Well, Israel fell eventually to the Assyrians, and several uh, years later, Judah, God had had enough. During this time of the divided kingdoms, God was sending prophets to challenge, encourage them, saying, wake up, I'm counting, and I don't want to get to five, because when I get to five, I'm coming down. And he was counting. He'd had enough. And what had happened now is Josiah, a great man of God in Judah, one of his sons was named king. His name was Zedekiah. Babylon had come in and basically taken over Jerusalem, and they set in place one of their own handpicked kings, which happened to be the son of Josiah. And Zedekiah was an evil person. He was not good at all. He was known for destroying and burning scripture. He followed and made an alliance with the enemy. So basically Babylon said, Zedekiah, you're under our control. We'll let you be king, but you answer to us. A few years of this and Zedekiah decided, forget Babylon, we're going to make friends with Egypt. And he went into an alliance, kind of a mafia, kind of covering with Egypt. Babylon had said, I've had enough once and for all. And Babylon came in and wiped out Jerusalem. Hundreds of years of prophetic messages warning Israel and Judah, that if they didn't get it right, if they didn't turn their hearts to God, that their holy temple and their nation and their people would be destroyed. And it happened in 587. Babylon came in, destroyed the temple, and carried every one of those people in Judah off as slaves and exiles from their own land. A few people escaped into the mountains, but for the most part, Judah was gone. Now, here's what's interesting. The minor prophets walk up to the point of it's going to happen, and then Obadiah is actually talking to the neighbors of Judah. So this is what's happened. Jerusalem's fallen. If you want to read about it, you can read about it in in Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Lamentations and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. All of those books talk about the fall of Jerusalem. The minor prophets skip to Obadiah, and here's the story of Obadiah. He's a guy talking to Judah's neighbors because the neighbors are laughing at the fall of Judah. So let's kind of talk a little bit about this whole idea of Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah, 21 verses, he's talking to the neighbors. Um, what do we know about him? All we know about him is from, he's from the planet Tatooine. And uh, he goes by the name of Obi, Obi-Wan. And just kidding, we actually know abs- we know nothing about Obi-Wan, 
Obadiah. We know nothing about Obadiah. Obadiah 1.1, he says this, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Thus says the God who's sovereign and king of all. He says this concerning Edom. Now, when Judah was destroyed, this is a word to Edom. Everybody say Edom means red. So he's talking to the reds. He's talking to the redites. And we're going to talk about why they're called the reds in a minute. He says, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger is sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. So Obadiah says, all right, Edom, I've got a message for you. God is putting it in the hearts of people around the nations to attack you. Now, I can't help but wonder why in the midst of Judah's most horrible, horrific moment of their life is God sending a prophet to their neighbors. Why does God care to talk or say anything to Edom. To understand Obadiah, we need to know a little bit of background about Edom. So let's kind of talk about Edom a little bit. One of the early fathers of, of Israel, his name is Abraham. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac was one of two sons uh, of Abraham. And Isaac married this woman named Rebekah. And he had two sons. They were twins. And these twins kind of were born at the same time. The first one that came out was all furry and had red hair. So they named him Edom, which means little furry dude, little red furry dude. They named him Esau, which means little hairy dude. He was nicknamed Edom, which means red. Anybody ever known somebody who's red hair, whose nickname was red? Ginger, you know a girl named Ginger whose hair was red? You call him Ginger? Poor guy. All right, I knew a red, his hair was red. So Esau, which means hairy dude, Edom, which means red. And then their their second son, the twin, was grasping on to Esau's ankle when he came out. So he was called leg grabber, and that name is Jacob. Jacob means supplanter or leg grabber, trickster, the person who's trying to get ahead. So he's actually pulling the leg, and they said, all right, you're going to be called hairy, furry dude, and you're going to be called smooth grabber. So God said that the two of them would be a great nation, but he also said these two twin brothers would always wrestle with each other. They would always fight with each other. There would always be trouble between the two of them. Esau, when he was a teenager, did something really dumb. He sold his inheritance to his brother Jacob when he was coming back from a tough day at work. He was hungry. He was he was. He felt, I'm dying, I'm hungry. Jacob said, I will fix you a meal if you sell me your inheritance. Esau, thinking he was going to die, sold his inheritance from his father to his brother Jacob. And Esau hated Jacob once he realized how dumb he was. Later on, when their dad, Isaac, was dying, Jacob snuck into his dad's quarters when he was on his deathbed Encouraged by his mother, he covered his body with animal hair and went in and told his father that he was Esau. Because Esau was technically born first, he should get the family blessing. So he went in to get, not, he's already had the inheritance from his father, now he wanted the blessing from God. So he goes in and he tells his dad, I'm, I'm Esau. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about him changing his voice, but he had to. His dad's blind. He could. He smelt like Esau. He felt like Esau. He must have impersonated. Hey, dad, whatever. You know, Esau was the hunter. He was the tough, rugged guy. Jacob was a mama's boy. He learned how to cook. He loved home ec. Ain't no shame in the game of that. So Jacob goes in. Isaac, thinking it was Esau, blesses him with a great blessing unto the Lord, which is actually what God had planned to begin. But Jacob was trying to do it his way rather than God's way. So here comes Esau back from his hard day of of hunting and fighting and providing for his tribe. He comes in and he finds out that Jacob received the blessing. The Bible says Esau begins to weep and cry. And he says, Dad, do you have anything? Father, is there anything left for me? And his father said, well, sort of. He says, 
You're going to be a great nation, but you're going to struggle your whole life. Least to say Esau was ticked at Jacob forever. They eventually reconciled later on in life and that they didn't kill each other, but their families grew to hate each other. Jacob started the Israelites. Esau became the family known as the Edomites, the Reds. And now you have two nations that are constantly at war with each other. When Israel was brought out of Egypt with Moses, they wanted to pass through Edom and Moses sent two letters to the leaders there and said, will you let us just pass through your valley, pass through your passageway. We won't touch anything. We won't touch your crops. We won't drink your water. And if somebody by chance touches anything, we'll pay for it. And Edom said, no way, twice. In fact, they said, if you show your face around here, we will kill you. So... Israel went around Edom and then Edom came up behind him and started knocking off all the sick, all the seniors and some of the children from the tail of their people. They didn't get along. 600 years later, Edom attacked Israel. They lost. A few hundred years later, they attacked Israel again and lost. They had a history of family rivalry. So now here's Judah falling to its enemy Babylon. And Edom is next door going, ha, ha, that's called cow tipping. Ha, ha, ha. A few of you know what I'm talking about. Um, they looked at him and they looked at Judah and said, ha, in your face, Judah, in your face. Woo. And they were gloating and celebrating and mocking. And so God raises up a prophet, Obadiah, to say, whoa, shut your mouth. Because your day's coming too. Now, just so you know how they felt when Judah was being taken away, here's a psalm that you may not realize was written at the time of the fall of Israel and uh, Judah. And this is what it says in Psalm 137. Judah is falling. Their flesh is burning. Their children are crying. Edom watches and mocks. And here's Psalm 137. He says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, that means their homeland. There on the, on, the, on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors, they asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing, play us a song. Sing us one of those happy songs that you love to sing back home. In verse 4, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. That means may I never speak again if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And then verse 7, he says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day of Jerusalem's fall when they fell. They yelled, Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its ground, to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Wow. It's like, we love you, Lord. Kill them. Kill the babies. You know, they were losing their mind. This is a group of people that were angry at Babylon and angry at their family. Remember Esau was the distant brother of Jacob and the Edomites and the Israelites were family by blood. Distant brothers. And they hated Babylon for taking them away and they hated Edom for doing nothing to help them. So that's the background of Obadiah. Now here's Obadiah, 21 verses. We're gonna read a whole book today. 21 verses, not a big deal. Here's verse of Obadiah. He says, behold, I will make you Edom. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. See, the Lord declares the root cause of their doom. A silent but deadly, uh, deadly stink is in this room right now. And it's not what you think. It's pride. I tell you, pride is one of the deadliest issues in the Bible, Obadiah addresses that. 
selfish pride. There's, there's maybe, I guess, maybe it's not a, a, a right way to say, well, there's a good kind of pride and a bad kind of pride, but there might be a type of positive self-esteem where you feel confident about who you are and what you can accomplish. Now, and we call that pride, but when the Bible talks about pride, it's a selfish pride that basically says that you're exalting yourself over another. You're looking for ways to make yourself look better and feel better and be better than others. And at times taking pleasure in other people's failures because it makes you look superior. And when the Bible talks about proud, about being pride, it's not a good confidence type of pride. It's the hateful despising, I'm better than you, aren't I awesome, type of pride. And God said through Obadiah to Edom, he said, you guys are so proud in your heart. That's your problem. Verse three, he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty swelling, uh, dwelling, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? You see, they lived in cliffs far above the reaches of men. You're actually gonna see pictures of what the town looked like of their capital. It says, though you soar aloft like the eagles, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now there is the capital city of Edom known as Selah. And Selah is what later became known as the city of Petra. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones, the second one, or the third one, the last crusade, the big ending was in that amazing picture in, the, in that amazing place called Petra. In fact, uh, play this video because I want to read, you might need to turn it down the volume a little bit, because I want to read you a little bit about why Edom was so proud of their land and proud of their accomplishments. There are four things that Obadiah addresses about their proud, about their pride. The first thing is that they were proud of their strength. You see, they, to get to their city, they lived in front of a mile-long crevice, nearly a mile-long crevice. So when you entered in, it was a mile-long crevice where it was only about 15 to 25 feet wide, and it stretched hundreds of feet into the air. It was the only way into of that city. It was a mile long and it led to their great treasures. It led to their great palace. It led to some of the wealthiest trade routes in the world. And they were convinced no one could get to us. They made their homes and lives among the cliffs and among the rocks, just as the birds. They were proud of their security. Because of that passageway, they thought we need no one and we have it all. In fact, that that little passageway was so small, history says that they could have fought off armies of thousands of people with only a dozen men. Because only a dozen men could fit through that, they were able to conquer and hold back enemies. They thought, nobody can touch us. We are the bank. When you get past that crevice, you see a beautiful building, which later was carved by um, the uh, later generation into the rock there. Uh, They were proud of their alliances. That means the nations were all in alliance with them because they were the perfect location for trade, for Egypt, for Babylon, for ancient Assyria, and for uh, Greece. And everybody had to travel through Edom, so they had powerful alliances. And even when Babylon took over Judah, they left Edom untouched because of its trade route. And they were also proud of their wisdom. Look how smart we are, they said. How advanced. In fact, they had some of the most advanced water systems known to man. That entire mountain region was piped through with water canals that were man-made and man-built. All of their passageways funneled enough water to supply water to a city of 50,000 people in the middle of the desert. They They were advanced in their sciences. They were advanced in their treasures. They had smart alliances. In fact, the Bible and ancients called them the men of the east. Because men of the east refers to the wise Edomites, the wise uh, Nabians, those that lived there in that region. And you know what? We do the exact same thing that the Edomites did. We say, well, I have enough money. I have enough friends. I have enough smarts to get me out of any problem, any trial. Do you have pride in your accomplishments, in your abilities, in your relationships? God declares to them, he says, this eagle which is soaring, the eagle has landed. The eagle will be brought down. And some of you today need to know that you will be brought down. The city 
actually was destroyed a few generations later and completely lost. It's now known as the rediscovered lost city of Petra because it was lost for generations and it was discovered again by a French explorer in 1812 and it unleashed this massive city that God said, no, I've had enough. So let's talk a little bit about Obadiah. How much more do we have left of this? I'll let you watch this a little bit. Turn it up a little bit. This is pretty cool. This is a guy scaling the wall there at one of the temples. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Uh, go ahead and turn it up, Stephen. Had beautiful mosaic uh, temple grounds and uh, the floors inside carved right out of the rock. The technology and the ability to, uh, to, to carve these great cities in their massive size, all those straight ways above the city that was all water canals that they built right into the mountain all those holes are homes and tombs and uh it's a city in the cleft of the rocks this is that canal that mile long canal that leads to the great treasure house and temple dedicated to the dead and house their treasures This was later built in the area of Selah. Now, by the way, Selah means rock because they were the people of the rock or stone. Uh, Greek, the word for uh, rock is Petra. It's also the name of an 80s Christian rock band. All right, last few footage here. Pretty amazing city, isn't it? The city also has significance for some people in how they view Bible prophecy. Some people believe that uh, a great remnant of people will hide in the city of Petra just before Christ comes back, um, depending on how your view of the end time is. The Bible talks a lot about this city and the people and their demise. Let's read on. Ob- uh, Obadiah, Obi, verse 5, the eagle has landed. Edom will be humbled. Verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Will they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come into you, would they not leave gleamings? But no, he says, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. He says, in, in most cultures, enemies will come in and they'll rob and they might leave some behind or they'll destroy a town and there might be enough to live on. He says, no, Edom, when my time comes for you, you'll have no treasures left. There'll be no food left. You will be completely dissolved. You will be completely annihilated. Your room will be total. Nothing will be left behind. Your pride and your security, that bank that you've saved up your confidence in, it cannot save you. Verse 70 says, all your allies have driven you to your brother, uh, to your border. That means you'll run as far as you can. Even your friends will turn against you. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread, those that you are in relationship have now set a trap beneath you. You have nowhere to turn, Obadiah is saying. You have no understanding. He says, you'll be completely baffled and confused. Your allies, your friends, your relationships, the people that you took pride in knowing had your back cannot save you. Verse 8, he says, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? See, he's referring to the wisdom of the Edomites and understanding out of Mount Esau. He says, you're not smart now, are you? He says, your pride and your, and your wisdom, your smarts cannot save you now. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timnon, that he's the grandson of Esau. And that was their great city, a great military city. He says, your great military city, every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by a slaughter. He says, man, I'm not impressed by your smarts. I'm not impressed by your friends. I'm not impressed by your abilities. I'm not impressed by your bank account. He says, in fact, I'm not threatened by it either. And if your pride does not destroy you, it will be the end of you because of me. He will cut them off in their pride. Now, I read this and I think, well, God, how can I make sure I'm not on God's list, right? So Obadiah then unpacks where their pride led them to. Look at this, verse 10, he says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, that's Israel and Judah, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. 
because of your violence. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off their wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. He says, man, when your own brothers... When your own brothers, Judah and Israel, were in need of help, when the enemy was coming in and stealing and casting lots and and making games out of their destruction, you stood back and did nothing. Edom, you mocked, gloated, and did nothing to help. Let me tell you something. When pride is controlling your life, pride moves you to do nothing. I want you to realize this because we often we say, well, you see someone's pain, you see their suffering. You might see the people on TV, you hear about the missionaries, you hear about somebody at work or you read the story in the newspaper and you think, oh man, somebody else will do it. Uh, it's not my thing. I, you know, I just don't do that. So I don't get my hands dirty. He says, doing nothing makes you guilty of the same if you can help. At the time of Israel's greatest moment of need and humiliation, you gloated. Verse 12, he says, but do not, he says, that which means you should not. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster talking about Israel in the day of his calamity, talking about his brothers, uh, the Israelites and Judah. He says, do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. There were people running from Judah going, save us, Edomite, save them, brothers, save us. And instead it says, do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Those that were running off, they were stealing their stuff, capturing the fugitives and delivering to the feet of Babylon. He says, hey, (laughs) we are aligned with you, Babylon. And God says, Do not, meaning you should not have done all this. What you have done is despicable. And Edom took advantage of Judah's pain and suffering. Here's the second thing that pride does, is that pride makes you feel entitled. Looking to gain from Judah's fall, they began to take advantage of the vulnerable, taking advantage of other suffering. I I think back of when Haiti had that massive earthquake that basically annihilated the entire country. Haiti was already disastrously poor and full of poverty. And then all of a sudden, in the wake of this amazing devastation, all these quotation fingers, missionary groups popped up all over Haiti, inviting missionaries to come over. But all they would do is take their money and send them to the same orphanage where they were paid the kids to act poor. And a lot of what was happening in Haiti were a bunch of people taking advantage of the misfortune of others. We see this in Africa today, all over Africa. Africa is actually one of the wealthiest nations in the entire world. They have more oil, they have more gold, they have more precious metal alloys, they have more silver. They should be the richest nation in the world, but yet they're the most poor because the wealthy take advantage of them and subject them to poverty and lie to them and misuse them and take advantage of their vulnerability. We see this at work as as those that are misfortunate or are left in the bottom of the rung or left in the bottom of the heap. Those at school who are struggling, who are left on the outside. And in the U.S. we have it happening. It says, Obadiah knew that whatever was happening to Judah was deserved. God had warned them and they did not listen. And Edom was just as guilty too. And they should have looked at Judah and they should have trembled. But pride deceived them and thought they were entitled. Obadiah 15, he says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. By the way, this is for all of us. When he says to the nations, that means this is a word to all of us. He says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. He says, all your laughing and drunkenness and merriment and good time parties will come to an end as if they never existed. 
God says, laugh it up, fuzzball. Your day's coming. The hairy red dudes. So Obi reminds us that if my kids do something, I step in. But if my kids do something and you step in, step back. Because you don't mess with my kids, right? You ever been like that as a parent? You're at a restaurant and your kids kind of have a meltdown? Maybe happened to one or two of you, right? Maybe they have a meltdown in a public place, grocery store, Target, Walmart, restaurant, whatever. And you're like, you have two choices. You either say, all right, to go, we're out of here. Sometimes we leave the grocery cart. Well, it's, it's, hey, you know, and we're like, we got to go. Meltdown now, time to go. Um, so, but if you like get onto your kids, you know, you're like, <laughs> you're like, get over here. You know, you're getting onto them and, you know, you handle it different ways. But if some stranger were to come up and try to discipline my kids, man, it's go time. Get your hands off my kids. Get your hand. Who are you to get involved in our situation? This is exactly what was happening. God was disciplining his kids and Edom was stepping in and God says, whoa, it's go time with you and me, Edom. I've had enough. Your day is coming too. But God was not done with Judah, verse 17. We're going to wrap up this book. He says, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those, a remnant, who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. That means they'll come back one day. And the house of Jacob, that's Judah, shall be a fire. That means an altar. And the house of Joseph, a a flame. That's the people of Israel. And the house of Esau, that's Edom, will be like stubble. That means they'll be the fire starters. They'll be destroyed and shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. By the way, uh, guess who the um, descendants of the Edomites are? Nobody. They don't exist anymore. That entire race of people is dissolved. There are some refugees that blended with other nations, but as a people, they're untraceable for the last 2,300 years. They don't exist anymore. He says, those, now this next part, it's the last part of Obadiah. I'm going to read it because we're reading all of it, but it's going to be a lot of places. So let me help you. It says, those of Negev, that's the south, will possess Mount Esau. That's uh, Edom's hairy mountain. That's funny. Mount Esau means hairy mountain. That's funny. Uh, That shall possess hairy mountain. And those of of, uh, Shephelah, that's the foothills, shall uh, possess the land of the Philistines. That's a uh, uh, modern-day West Israel. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. That's the north. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. That's the east. And the exiles of his host of the people of Israel, all those that were sent out from Babylon, will possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zephyrah. That's west and up to, uh, that's far north Israel. And the exiles of Jerusalem, even in Shepharad, by the way, Shepharad is in Spain. Remember Babylon, what they like to do is dislocate people. They would come in and make people exiled to all the distant lands. So they would send some of Israel as far as Spain to completely destroy their culture. And the Bible says that even the Jewish people sent as far as Spain, that time Spain, he says, they shall return and they shall possess the cities of Negev. That's the the desert south. That's where Jordan is today, by the way. Those taken far away will be back. And this is not symbolic. This is literal. Incredible details that were fulfilled. So Judah will be back. The promise of Abraham will be filled. God will finish what he starts and he will do what he declares. Here's the last verse of Obadiah. Obi says, verse 21, saviors, that means the saved ones, the remnants, those that God has saved shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And Obadiah finishes with this, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Love that. When it's all said and done, it's the Lord's. So what is this kingdom? Is it an earthly kingdom? Well, they did return. Judah was restored. The temple was rebuilt. But then 580 years later, the lion of the tribe of Judah walked into the scene. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah who had come. He was not there to set up an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom built upon the foundations of God's will and desires and mission for our life and in our heart. And after Jesus completed his mission of dying on the cross for our sins, 40 years after his ascension into heaven, Rome had had enough of Israel and the temple was destroyed again and it has never been rebuilt since. 
And to this day, Israel is crying out for a city. And God says, no, your city is different. Your temple is different. God did rebuild the temple, but this time the temple was you and me. Those that bow the knee to Christ, we are that temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. Those that become followers of Christ, we are the people of God. We are Mount Zion. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So we just finished this book of Obadiah. What's the point of it for us today? Let me give you real quickly four very simple things that Obadiah says for you and for me. This is what Obadiah means for us. First of all, I want you to realize this, that God rules over the course of nations. This is important. He says, the pride, he says, thus says the Lord God. We find this all through the minor prophets is this God is in control. Everybody said that God is in control. Let me tell you something. If you get anything from this series, get this. God is in control. He turns history as he pleases. No follower of Christ should ever have anxiety that the world is spinning out of control because God is still on the throne. History is his story unfolded. We may feel like a runaway stagecoach pulled by wild horses, but the Lord who created the world is securely at the reins. And Obadiah reminds us that God does not owe us anything. He is in charge of life and death. The Lord has total rights to this world and to our life, and he never wrongs anybody. The Lord rules over the course of the nations. Here's the second thing Obadiah reminds us, and number, and you probably know this already, is that pride is blinding. It's blinding. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride is misleading and it will take you places you don't want to go. Pride tells us we're fine. Pride tells tells us I'm independent. Pride tells tells us I'm self-sufficient. Pride says somehow I'm better than others. Pride says I'm invulnerable. Pride says that, that I am someone who needs nobody. It distorts our reality. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. And that one verse is a living illustration, or actually Edom is a living illustration of that verse. Pride is blinding. Some people say, well, they're too prideful to forgive. You don't know what they've done, and I'm right and they're wrong. Pride will destroy relationships between family, just like it did with Esau and uh, Jacob. Pride says, well, I, I know everything, and it will, it, will, it will blind you from being able to learn, to be able to grow, to be able to listen, to be able to see your own weakness. Pride will blind you to be able to see the needs of others. Pride will blind you from seeking help. Some of you, you are in need of help. Your marriage needs help, but you're too blinded by your pride. Some of you are trapped in addiction, but you're blinded by your pride, thinking you got this. Some of you, you've got a secret that is wearing you down, but you're too prideful of what it might mean if you tell anybody. Some of you, you come in here only to nitpick the message because you know it all. You're so prideful, you can't learn anything anymore. Nations, adults, and children, we all do this. Pride makes us feel better about ourselves. Unfortunately, it destroys those closest to us. Pride blinds us from being able to see God. This is what Psalm 10, 4 says, in his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Some of you, you're so proud to ever imagine that you might need God, that God might have something better for you. And it's blinded you. You think, as with Edom, it has also blinded us from seeing injustice and suffering. It blinds us from the needs of others. We see people in pain and go, they deserve it. They're drunk, they deserve it. Well, they built that house, now they got to live in it. You know, that's their fault. They brought it upon themselves. Somebody else can do it. It's not my thing. Pride blinds us to those that are in need of help and justice. And God despises our negligence against the injustice of others and against the poor. James Strong's dealing with uh, strong uh, deals strongly with pride. This is what James says in James four seventeen. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is for them sin. You're like what? 
You mean there is sin when we do something bad and then there's sin when we don't do anything at all? Yes. The Bible says when you turn your eyes from what you know you should do, when your pride or when any reason says that's something I should be doing and you don't do it, the Bible says then it becomes sin. Edom was guilty of doing the same thing Babylon did, even though at the time they hadn't done it yet. He says, you laughing at their destruction is the same as destroying them because you did nothing. There's what's known as the sins of commission, the sins that you do, and the sins of omission, the sins of things God's called you to do and told you to do that you do not do. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. We've been given stewardship of it. And God says, I want you, if you're a follower of Christ, to do this. If we don't, it is a sin. Here's the third thing Obadiah reminds us. It reminds us that God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud, and it's usually not pretty. I've got a lot of verses in your notes. Go home this week. Read the extra verses that are in your notes, particularly in this area about pride. Obadiah 4 says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, there I will bring you down to Chinatown. He says, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Fifteen years after this prophecy, Babylon attacked Edom and they were plundered. Obadiah 15 says, and speaking to the nations of the world today, speaking to you, Obadiah 15 says, as you have done, it shall be done to you and your deeds shall return on your own head. The proud will reap what they sow. Not just Edom, but you too. Here's a few verses on pride. Proverbs 8:13 says, uh, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, God says. Proverbs 29, uh, 23, pride brings a person low and the lowly in spirit gain honor. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes pride. I need someone to help me out real quick. Someone um, who maybe plays football a little bit. Anybody? Well, we got E, we got Austin. Austin, you can come down here really fast. Come on down here, man. Here's what a lot of people think. Yeah, just make your way right through the middle. Sure. Um, <laughs> here's, a, here's, a, here's what a lot of people think. I'm going to lay on the ground, but don't actually walk on me, okay? A lot of people don't understand what humility is when the Bible says to humble yourself. A lot of people think that humility is being walked on. So, you know, you're going to walk on me. Can you walk on me? Uh, uh, good job. All right, a lot of people think that, that humility is, well, I don't like getting walked on. It's, it's getting, no, this is what humility, humility is not being walked on and pride is walking in front of, here's what pride says. Say this is a door right here. This is pride, excuse me. This, that's pride. But this is humility. Humility is not being walked on. Humility is this. Humility is, hey, will you come in front of me? There you go, you can go first. Humility is basically saying, I might deserve the front. I might deserve the bigger piece. I might, deserve, I might even be better. But I'm going to see you and observe you and let you go first and esteem you higher than myself. That is humility. And another way to look at it, and this is why I said I need a football player, is I don't know, I, I wasn't always this big and muscular. I was at one time a small skinny guy. And uh, I actually played football in seventh and eighth grade. And I was a small skinny guy. And, uh, and I know you play football. You like to play football. But here's the deal. Even though I was a small skinny guy, I made the team in junior high both years. You know why? I was not that fast. I thought I was fast, but I wasn't that fast. I was put on outside linebacker and, uh, um, and safety, which is kind of like a, you have to be, excuse me, ready to run and to tackle, whatever. Here's the deal. You got to be able to get in front of people. And humility is like this. And my coach used to always say, come up in front of me. Please don't plow me over, all right? I'm not going to ask you to come at me. Uh, but if he's, you know, larger and bigger than me, and I was a small, skinny guy, my coach said, you know what, Ted? If you just stay low, you'll be fine. If you stay planted and low, when that guy comes at you, come at me slow, just like walk towards me. Walk through. What happens is if you're... Planted and low, you can take down even the biggest of guys. In fact, the bigger the guys, if, you're, if you are planted and low, you can even take out muscular, massive guys. And I learned very early 
to say planted and low. So what happened is I was able to overcome the giants in my life. Thank you, Austin. Here's the deal. God says humility is saying planted and low. If you will just stay low of heart, low of spirit, humble, putting others in front of yourself, the monsters of your life will not destroy you, will not attack you, will not get you. Pride will blind you, but humility will save you. Insecurity says, I can't do this. Pride says, I can do this better than you probably. Humility says, I can do this because the Lord has given me this and I will give him the glory. First Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. See, the truth is we're only valued at $3.57. When we die, we return to the earth, we become dust. And the equivalent size of our human body is the equivalent of $3.57 of dirt. So you've got $3.57 driving around in a car. You're worth more in the bank than you are in real life. I mean, with more money than you're worth. So you have a choice, humble yourself or be humbled. And here's the last thing that Obadiah gives us and is that God will always make a way of escape. Obadiah 17 says, the Mount, in Mount Zion, thus shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy. Those who run from pride and find shelter and refuge in Mount Zion will be rescued. Now, I want you to hear me. Hebrews 12 says that Zion is a picture of the body of Christ. Every follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, you are known as the New Testament Zion. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 5 that you are that city on a hill. You are that bright and shining star on the mountain that people are to run to. You are the light of the world. 1 Corinthians says that we are now the temple rebuilt. We are the kingdom on earth. Guys, we are that holy place. Check this out filled not with the perfect or those who never fail, but with the broken and humbled, those turning from pride to the Savior. Guys, listen, the world is looking for Mount Zion. The world is looking for hope. They're looking for an escape. They're looking for a rescue. And the Bible tells us that if you are a follower of Christ, you are Mount Zion. You are that city on a hill. You are the light to the world. You are that temple rebuilt. You are the people of God shining in the world as a light for those to come to. And if they come to us, if they come to this place, if they talk to you, will you be one that finds a refuge for them? It gives them a place of safety. It gives them a place to meet God. We are the trailer for heaven. And I love going to movies. When we go, I got to get there early enough to see the trailers, right? See the previews. They're called trailers because at one time they were put at the end of the movie. When they move them to the front, they still call them trailers. A good trailer gives you just enough to want to go, right? They don't tell you everything, just enough to want to go. We are As the kingdom of God, we are from the future. We are the preview of coming attractions. Our life is to be a trailer. But instead of coming attractions, church has become a God mart where we fill our baskets with stuff from God to make our life better. We want to fertilize our life instead of give it the soaking of God's word. We want sprinkles instead of the daily water. God says, no, you are that city on a hill. You are that light to the world. You are Zion. What would your life look like if God were really in charge of it? What would your family look like if God were really in charge of it? What would your school look like if God were really in charge of your life? What would your workplace look like if God were truly in charge of your life? If you were that city, if you were that uh, people, if you were Mount Zion to those people, we are a city of people built by Jesus. I want to end with this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to lift up Jesus' name and declare that, Lord, we want to be that humble people. 1 Peter 2, 4 says, As you come to him, the living stone, talking about Jesus, rejected by humans, that means the cross, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, that's you, 
are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To God has come. Jesus himself has built this city, which is you. Verse 6, he says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's our story. God took us. He saw something precious in us, for he is precious. And he built a new life in us. He gave us a new beginning. He set us on a mountain in our neighborhood, in our school, in our workplace. And then he says this, verse 9, But you are a chosen people now, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are that Zion, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. So go tell the world. Be Zion. So ask yourself, are you an Edomite? How's your pride with others? How's your pride with God? Do you recognize your need for Him? Do you neglect and ignore the hurting around you? Where do you place your assurance? Edom in many ways represents the best we can do on our own. But they fail. But here's the mystery and the great victory of Obadiah. If you will run to the mount, if you will run to Jesus, you will find rescue. Ironically, Obadiah's name means servant of God or one who submits. So will you do that? Will you allow God to break your pride and submit to him today? Let's pray. God, thank you so much, Lord, that your word is alive. And uh, Lord, it, it means something. Lord, it's, it's, it's not just stories and mythology, but it's real people learning to walk with you, telling us your story as it unfolds for us and gives us Jesus the Messiah. God, thank you that you sent a rescue, Jesus, who died on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that we would run to him today, run to that holy mountain, and that we would shine as a city on a hill for a world that needs rescue. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.